0: Ahead of Their Time is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus, and so to talk about it, I brought my producer Joe Sykes into the studio with me. Hey, Joe. Hey, Neil. I kind of wish I'd had The Great Courses Plus when I was researching stories for Ahead of Their Time. Might have made things a little bit easier. There's still time, Joe, and there's a ton of things that we can look up on the site. Uh, how about Jules Verne? That guy invented science fiction. Talk about ahead of their time, right? Yeah, I, I dig Jules Verne. Should we watch? And we can even talk about what we learned later in the show. In the meantime, we've got a great deal for a month of unlimited access when you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash time. So check it out. Sometimes in sports, you have to do something radical to stop the truly great players. In basketball, they hacked Shaq. People are saying, as they immediately have a -a hack-a-Shaq call, I don't believe it.
1: Five seconds in.
0: In soccer, they fouled Messi.
1: right over the top, into the knee, of Messi, that is absolutely scandalous. In
0: all of these sports, teams and coaches often have to dream up ways to tackle their greatest problem. Facing a great player. And usually those tactics are violent, stretching the limits of the rulebook. But in baseball, the solution to dealing with the greatest hitter of all time was to actually redesign the game itself. From 538 and Hot Takedown, this is Ahead of Their Time, a series of documentaries that takes a look at the renegade teams, coaches, and players who helped change their sport forever. I'm Neil Payne. This week, we're telling the story of Ted Williams and Lou Boudreau. It's a story of how a long-lost strategic quirk was brought back by modern sabermetrics and set off a war at the heart of America's national game.
2: Ted Williams, lifetime batting average, 344. American League batting champ, six times, player of the decade, 1951 through 1960, Ted Williams, the greatest hitter of them all.
3: Famously, he would say that when he grew up, he wanted to be the greatest hitter who ever lived, and that when people saw him, that they would refer to him as that. There goes the greatest hitter who ever lived.
0: Ben Bradley Jr. wrote the definitive biography of Ted Williams.
3: Before a game in the clubhouse, he would put up a mirror and strip down to his skivvies and swing a bat and say, I'm Ted Williams. I'm the best fucking hitter who ever lived.
0: Pardon my French. In 1941, the young Red Sox superstar hit 406, becoming the last player to hit 400 in a season. The next year, he won the Triple Crown, leading the league in batting average, hits, and home runs. Ted had established himself as the best hitter on the planet. After that Triple Crown season, Williams left the game for a few years to fight in the Second World War. When he got back, though, his swing was still the best in the league, and he picked things up right where he left off. During the first half of 1946, Ted was crushing it, batting three forty four with 23 home runs in the season's first 82 games. Here's Ted Williams himself talking about that season.
2: By the middle of '46, I was really... Uh, uh tattooing the ball and, and, and breaking up a lot of things.
0: But just as Ted was on track for another record-breaking year, he came face-to-face with a guy hell-bent on ending all that. Lou Boudreau.
3: Lou Boudreau was the player-manager of the Cleveland Indians.
0: That's right. Boudreau was a player and the manager. Because back then, you could actually be both at the same time. And it wasn't like he was at the end of his career, either. He was young, In fact, he was just out of college.
2: Lou Boudreau was, at the very beginning of his Major League career, he was called the the boy shortstop. Okay, my name is Russell Schneider. My friends call me Russ.
0: Russ goes back a long way with the Indians. He covered them as a beat writer for the Cleveland Plain Dealer, and he became such good friends with Lou Boudreau that he ended up helping him write his memoir. The Indians
2: hired him over and beyond the complaints of a lot of people, including a lot of the players, because he was like 24 or 25 years old. So at that
0: time then, his nickname was changed to the boy manager. In other words, Boudreaux was young and precocious. He thought a lot of himself. He was one of the league's top shortstops, he was a great hitter, and he was the second youngest manager in Major League history but he had one thing that he couldn't get past. He always thought that he was as good as Ted Williams. So on July 14th, 1946, his team traveled to Fenway Park to play a doubleheader against Williams and the Red Sox. And for Boudreaux, this was his moment to prove to everyone else that he was every bit as good as Ted.
2: Williams got most of the headlines praise as what of being such a great hitter. Knowing Boudreaux as I think I did, there's no doubt but this was a clash of egos between Williams and Boudreaux.
0: Boudreaux, this whiz kid young player-manager, against the greatest hitter who ever lived. And in the first game of the doubleheader...
2: Boudreaux went 5-for-5, and three of his hits were doubles, which was, at that
0: time, an American League record. Still... Williams topped him. He hit a double and three homers, one of which was a grand slam, all in the first game.
2: The war of nerves against Williams has failed. Ed is swinging
4: again and hitting the ball hard.
0: You can just imagine how frustrating that must have been for Boudreaux, beaten again by his nemesis. But he had a plan. He knew he had one advantage. As the Indians' manager he could actually set up his team's strategy specifically to beat Williams.
4: Boys whisper that Lou Boudreau, Cleveland manager, burning the midnight oil, perfecting a new type of defense for them.
0: And Boudreau knew something else. Williams' swing had a certain quirk to it that set it apart from many Major League Baseball players. He was a dead pull hitter. What that meant was whenever Williams hit the ball, it almost always went to the right side of the field. Hitting it to the left felt unnatural for Williams. And besides, he hit it harder when he went to the right anyway. So between the first and second games of that doubleheader...
2: Lou sat down and he said, I'm tired of having Williams beat us. And this is what I want to do.
0: He took on a blackboard. He gathered his team around, grabbed a piece of chalk, and started drawing. He sketched out where he wanted his players to stand whenever Williams came to bat. There are seven fielders on a baseball diamond, not counting the pitcher and the catcher.
2: Six of those players, he moved
0: into right field. He drew a wall of three infielders crowded in between first and second base, with a trio of outfielders backed up behind them. The familiar symmetry of the baseball diamond had been disrupted. And with it, the Ted Williams shift was born.
2: I call it the Boudreaux shift. He said, I, here's what I want you to do. See this stuff I put on the blackboard? Yeah. Okay, when I yell, yo, that's when everybody takes the position that I put on the blackboard. And I say, what are you? They, The players say, what are you, crazy? Even his coaches said the same thing to him. You can't do that. How can you do that? He said, we're
0: going to do it. Boudreau waited until Williams' second at bat in the second game to try the shift. Williams walked out to the usual roar of the Fenway crowd, swinging his bat over his shoulder. He pawed the ground in front of him with his cleat. And then he looked up.
2: When Williams stepped into the plate and saw the shift for the first time, he said to the umpire, what the hell is going on out there? They can't do that.
0: But they could. Totally legal. In fact, a couple of managers had tried it before, albeit without much success. And so Williams had a choice. Swing just like he'd always swung, and he might hit a home run. But he might also hit the ball into the crowd of defenders shifted to his right. Or... He could go outside his comfort zone and try to hit the ball to the left. But Williams hated that. And this is the greatest hitter of all time. The greatest hitter of all time wasn't going to change his swing for anybody. So Williams tried to
2: beat the shift, and that's really what Boudreau wanted him to do.
0: He was appealing to
3: to Williams' pride. He knew that it would be difficult for Ted to alter his swing, that he saw himself as a slugger, a home run hitter, and that therefore he would
0: continue doing it his way. And it actually worked. The first time Williams came up, he hit the ball straight into the teeth of the shift. In fact, he hit it right to Boudreaux himself, standing directly between first and second base
3: very quickly. It was the talk of the major leagues. It wasn't long at all, maybe within a week or two, that the rest of the American League was adopting it.
2: The next batter is Ted Williams trying to solve the puzzle of that Boudreaux ship. Boy, that left side looks tempting, but Ted likes to pull.
0: Teams around the league were shifting on Williams left and right. Okay, okay, they were only shifting to the right. But Williams stubbornly hit into the shift over and over.
3: Powering hits
4: were snared near the right-field foul line. Hard-hit ground balls were smothered by the extra infielder in the second base area. Everyone wondered, how can Tett beat the defense? And as the days passed, the defense became the talk of the nation. The majority of the experts agreed that the
3: defense was a legitimate device and asked, why doesn't Ted get the left field? Williams uh, argued that no, he wasn't going to alter his natural swing. That the fans were showing up at the park to see him hit, so he decided to do it his way and continue being a pull hitter.
0: In interviews, Williams said he thought the shift shaved about 15 points off of his lifetime batting average. And this is a guy who already hit 344. In fact, it's probably the only tactic that ever actually had an effect on Ted Williams. But ironically enough, the shift only increased the mythology around him. It became an iconic moment in the history of baseball. An example of just how desperate teams were to stop this one legendary player.
2: Everybody quiet now here at Fenway Park after they gave him a standing ovation of two minutes, knowing that this is probably his last time at bat. Here's the pitch. Williams swings, and there's a long drive to deep right. That ball is going and it is gone. A home run for Ted Williams in his last
0: time at bat. Lou Boudreau did not appreciate that legacy. I know that it bothered him. He was a
2: very proud guy, just as Williams was. And, and he said, you know, look, I, oh, I went through all this this bs because my players thought i was screwy or dreaming and he said i went through all that and i proved i proved that i was
0: right poor boudreaux he took a risk in an age when no one was really thinking about fielding and defense he did something radical and he was proven right he ended up transforming baseball yet he became a mere footnote in the legend of ted williams After the break, we'll find out why Boudreaux's vision ended up changing baseball and how one man figured out something Ted Williams never could, how to beat the Lou Boudreaux shift. Hey, Joe. So we're back, and while the listeners were learning all about Ted Williams, we watched a video lecture from The Great Courses Plus about Jules Verne right here on my iPhone. That's pretty convenient. So did you learn anything cool? Well, I think it's pretty fair to say this Jules Verne guy was way ahead of his time. I mean, not only did the guy invent submarines, not only did he come up with an idea for a spacecraft, he also thought up skywriting. I mean, who knew that about him? I'll tell you who knew about that. People who subscribe to The Great Courses Plus. And if you want to know more about visionaries like Jules Verne, all you got to do is sign up for The Great Courses Plus. There are thousands of courses on there about all kinds of stuff, like extreme weather, the aging brain, even the geology of national parks. Maybe I'll get some more ideas for our next series together, Neil. All you got to do is sign up for The Great Courses Plus. Right now, ahead of their time, listeners and podcast producers like you get a whole month of unlimited access to all of their lectures. No charge. Just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com time right now. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash time to get an entire month of unlimited access to all of the Great Courses Plus lectures when you sign up, all for free. And now, back to the defensive shift. We're back, and we've moved forward in time to the heady days of 2007. The world economy is on the brink of collapse. Teddy Ballgame's head has been frozen in liquid nitrogen and stored somewhere in the Arizona desert and the shift has more or less disappeared from baseball. Why did a tactic that had worked so well against the greatest hitter of all time become a rare and quirky strategic move, one basically absent from baseball for 50 years? Jonah Carey, a baseball writer and journalist, thinks
1: that he has the answer. Well, two of the biggest logical fallacies that come up in sports and maybe in life are confirmation bias and selection bias. In baseball,
0: as in life, Conservatism, with a small c, is a powerful force. Managers and front offices just don't like to take risks. And if people have a notion about what works, they're going to find any example they can to support that idea.
1: So let's say that you're against the shift and you have a bunch of ground balls and they're sucked up by the second baseman who's in short right field and throw to first for the out... If one ball squeaks through that to where maybe where the shortstop would have been standing and it just goes for a hit, aha, I told you the shift is bunk, that's it. When
5: it goes bad, you look bad.
0: This is John Dewan, the author of The Fielding Bible, and a guy you'd be safe calling the godfather of shift data.
5: Human nature is, is kind of coaxing people
0: not to look bad. Think about it. It's all psychology. Why do something inventive when you stand to lose more by failing than you gain with success? And then there was this other thing.
5: You know, there weren't real strong analytics back in the 70s and 80s that could tell you this kind of thing would work.
0: Teams just didn't have the data. But then Sabermetrics came along. And Sabermetrics is this movement that says that if we collect data, if we study that data, we can find advantages. Suddenly, GMs and front offices across the major leagues were focused on this idea that to win without spending much money— All you had to do was look at the numbers. Into this context come the Tampa Bay Rays. It was regarded as, um, you know, maybe the worst franchise in all of baseball for quite a while. That's Jonah Carey again. He
1: wrote a book about the Rays. He throws it away. The ball's in play. Gutierrez can score. Wow, This is... This is bad baseball. Four defensive miscues have cost the Devil Rays dearly in the eighth. The Rays had come
0: into the AL East as an expansion team, and that was a division dominated by the big-spending Yankees and Red Sox, so they never really had a chance. But everything changed in the mid-2000s when Stuart Sternberg, a former partner at Goldman Sachs, decided he was going to buy the team. And with him, he brought a bunch of other Wall Street types. You know, number guys, quants. Guys whose entire purpose in life is to use data to find hidden
1: advantages. His theory was, let's just succeed and be 2% better than the competition as much as possible. And eventually what we'll find is in the long run... We can outflank those richer teams by just being 2% better and being 2% better. The Rays' number
0: crunchers studied the data, and they discovered a really efficient tactic that could help their fielding and defense, a tactic dredged up from baseball's distant past.
1: You guessed it, the defensive shift. The shift really is a perfect example of of an extra 2% advantage because the shift, frankly, doesn't work all the time. In fact, it fails quite a bit. So the race front office
0: decided to bring back the shift. But the problem was that they weren't actually down on the field telling the players what to do. What the team really needed now was its very
1: own Lou Boudreau. If you're the CEO of Goldman, the CEO of Goldman is not on the floor. He's not necessarily making uh, a bunch of trades or, or executions. But he'll go out and he'll hire the best and brightest from, you know, whatever, Ivy League school du jour or or just the best talent in general. And and the Rays realize this, too. And so they go out and they hire Joe Maddon. At the
0: time, Joe Madden was just a lowly bench coach for the Anaheim Angels. But Sternberg knew Madden had been advocating this shift for years to anyone who would listen. The only problem? He didn't have the data to back up his hunch.
1: Once the Rays empower him with a whole baseball operations department, Madden is all in. He wants every part of that. Madden was very open-minded to this stuff and very much a believer in data, even if maybe it was something that may have contradicted his own belief. If you show him data that contradicts what he has believed for a year, 10 years, 20 years, he'll say, oh, I never thought about it that way. All right, I trust you. Let's give it a go. Not even I trust you, but I trust the data.
0: And the data is telling him, shift. So Madden starts shifting.
1: Joe Madden, he's kind of the doctor and
5: the master of the defensive shift. And it's yeah, not and just shifting shortstop.
0: against pull hitters in the style of Ted Williams. He's shifting against everyone. Pull hitters, contact hitters, slap hitters, even right-handed hitters. Interesting
1: shift. We haven't really seen one like this against Hardy,
2: but Joe Madden has come up with all kinds of interesting shifts this year. Shortstop, deep- Really, Rod,
1: see this type of shift all that often against a guy like uh, Peralta. You really don't see a lot of managers over-shift in this fashion against right-handed batters. Usually it doesn't matter who, who you are. If the data says so, you're getting shifted against. And it works. And all of a sudden, just this disaster of a team become this airtight team that you can't score runs off their pitchers. Ground ball to second. Elamira's got it. Rays are going to the World Series. From nowhere, they transformed
0: themselves from a perpetual doormat to a championship contender. And the shift was
1: right at the center of their resurgence. I think the whole idea with sabermetrics is you're just looking to zig where other people zag. It's not that that's the most revolutionary thing ever. It's just an honest assessment of the market and realizing this is the undervalued asset. This is what we have to do. Just as teams in
0: the 1940s adopted the shift when they saw how well it worked against Ted Williams, so too did they embrace it when they saw it working against hitters in the late 2000s. All of a sudden, every team in the league is shifting. The shift becomes a symbol of the way big data is changing baseball. And suddenly, all these questions that Ted Williams had to face in 1946 are being posed to hitters in the late 2000s. What the hell do you do to get past this thing? So we hunted around for someone who might be able to answer that question. And we came up with this guy.
4: My name is Carlos Pena, and I played Major League Baseball for 14 seasons. I grew up watching... Home runs, home runs, home runs, home runs, home runs. And I was just a kid in the Dominican Republic, and all I wanted to do was hit home runs. Anything else was not fun. I wanted to hit the ball out of the park. And uh, my father, wow, wow, home run! You know, When uh, we were playing in the living room or something, and I would hit a, a paper, you know, a newspaper ball, and go,
0: home run! You know, that's what was celebrated. Carlos Pena slugged his way to the major leagues as a top prospect in the early 2000s. After that, he changed teams a few times, put up a few decent years. Then, out of nowhere, he hit 46 home runs in 2007 while playing for the Rays. Right around the same time Joe Madden was reintroducing the shift to the major leagues.
1: Carlos Pena, and there's a five ball deep to right field, way back Kelly, and that's gone. Driven deep into right field. Way back. Thomas to the wall and gone. Carlos Pena.
3: And there's a high fly ball back into right field. Gone. Pena hits number 46.
4: That was 2007. I hit 46. 2008, I had the shift on me. And the shift is absolutely a killer. You're doing exactly everything you set out to do. So you went up there to hit the ball hard. You hit it rushed it, Well, you're out. And
3: here's Pena. Ground ball right into the teeth of the shift, and Lopez from short right field throws out Pena. line and pitch
1: to him, and he swings and hits a rocket into shallow right with the overshift on.
3: And he lines this one right to Johnson, who had him played between first and second in the shift.
2: One away.
4: So the first time you do it, it's, okay, fine, I I still crushed it. Second time, same thing. You're like, hey, you know what, I still hit the ball hard. Now the third time, it just gets a little annoying. You're like, wait a second, you know, is this the way it's going to be, you know, for the rest of my career? And sure enough, that's exactly what happened.
0: So Pena, just like Ted Williams six decades earlier was faced with a classic shifties dilemma. So now you ask
4: me, what do you do if you are a hitter that getting, that's getting shifted? And uh, that's a very difficult question, because it's very hard to change what you've been taught since you were a kid.
0: It took Pena a few years to unlearn what he had been taught. But eventually, unlike Williams, whose ego led him to try to power through the shift, Pena started to adopt another tactic. He did something Ted Williams had only tried a handful of times during his whole career. Carlos Pena bunted. Shift is on for Pena.
3: And he bunts the ball, third base side. Batista with a pickup and the throw, not in time. And the Rays get the bunt single from Carlos Pena with
0: Longoria. The bunt was something that players traditionally did just to move their teammate from one base to the next. And it's perhaps the lamest-looking athletic act outside of the underhand free throw. But Carlos Pena turned the bunt into his own secret weapon. I remember being in Chicago. At this point, it's 2011, and Pena is on the Cubs. The, the stadium is
4: absolutely packed. We're, you know I was playing for the Cubs. We're playing against the Cincinnati Reds. And, you know, I had 20-something home runs at the time. You know, And I get to a two-strike count.
1: Cincinnati puts a big shift on the left-handed batting Pena.
0: It's a A situation where a bunt is out of the question. Sluggers like Peña practically never bunt anyway, but especially not with two strikes, where even a foul ball means an out. And I remember stepping out of the box. I got the shift on. I said, let's see if it's true
4: that you have guts, okay? Are you going to do the unthinkable here, which is bunt with two strikes? The power hitter, Carlos Peña, is going to bunt with two strikes. Fastball inside.
1: And it's bunted. How about that? great play. A two-strike bunt by Pena, and that's a bun hit. That's the last thing in the world the Reds or anyone else would be looking for from Pena. Anyone else
3: includes the two broadcasters for Fox. <laughs>
2: oh, man.
4: It felt like I was giving in, you know, like I was saying, okay, you guys got me. I'm just going to bunt, you know, uh, instead of saying, I am just gonna hit this through the shift, and you know, if someone tries to catch this baseball that I'm gonna hit, it's gonna burn their glove. You know, that's kind of silly, but in reality, sometimes as uh, prideful athletes, we think that. I'm like, no, man, play the game. We swing our way, uh, uh, you know, off the island. We have to. Uh, that's 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 the way we we were taught. You know, if we want to make it to major leagues, you better be swinging for some power. You know, no one said
0: that's great bunt, son. Heinous <laughs> bunts, though. They were actually great. At one point in his career, he was 15 for 25 on bunts against the
1: shift. That's a 600 batting average. Carlos Pena becomes one of the most prolific bunters in the majors against the shift. He's slow. He's a big guy. He can't run. But there's nobody to field a bunt. All he's got to do is vaguely push it past the pitcher. And I don't care if you're Bartolo Colon strapped to six Molinas. You are beating that thing out. You are going to make it to first base because there's nobody to do anything.
0: Players have been bunting for hits since baseball was invented. But Pena says his success at combating the shift has actually changed the way the game is played.
4: Man, the shift is just a nemesis. The shift is something
0: that I wish that they could uh, get rid of. Pena thinks that kids who are learning to play the game today aren't being taught the basics of swinging the way he was because they're too preoccupied with the kind of defense they'll have to face. Now, it doesn't matter because I'm not
4: playing but uh, even for the younger kids coming up, I'm like, for the sake of them, I'm like, please just take
0: away this shit. New baseball commissioner Rob Manfred actually agrees with painting. Here he is talking to ESPN about how he wants to improve the game. Things like eliminating shifts. I would be open to those sorts of ideas. We have really smart
3: people working in the game. And they're going to figure out ways to get a competitive advantage. I think
0: it's incumbent upon us in the commissioner's office to look at the advantages that are produced and say, is this what we want to happen in the game? Manfred thinks the shift makes the game less exciting because it makes it harder for teams to score runs. And this is a conversation that comes up again and again in the hot take sphere that dominates sports media.
1: Talking about that shift, right? I mean... What do you make of it? What should we do? Should we limit it? Illegal defense sort of thing. Your take? Well, I, you know, for me, I think we're in the entertainment industry. If they want to entertain,
2: they need offense.
0: Right, and we really need to question, is it time to do something to help the hitters? And the, the
5: idea is in illegal. In defense other words, the
0: shift role. is now a problem. Because it's happening so much.
5: Shift is on. As the shift is on. There it is.
3: The shift is on. The
0: shift is on for the Rockies' defense. And in many ways, it's become a fight over the nature of the game. Because ever since Sabermetrics came along, baseball's fans, pundits, and players have bristled at the idea that on-field decisions are basically now a product of hard math.
4: And that could be maddening uh, to many players. It's like, wait, this kid from Harvard who has never, you know, thrown a baseball... It's deciding my future, oh, that angers
0: players like you wouldn 't believe. You can see where pain is coming from, but the problem for the anti shifters is that the shift actually works. in fact, it works too well
5: oh it's it's huge, it is really huge,
0: according to John Dewan, the author of the Fielding Bible, It can help you win about three extra games per year.
5: It is almost impossible for any team to come up with like replacing even one player and get three wins. Three wins, I think every single year, has separated a team from getting into the playoffs or not.
0: Teams aren't going to give up that competitive advantage without a fight. So now it's a battle between Manfred and the franchises, between the numbers guys and the traditionalists. And really, in the end, it's over the idea of what a baseball field should look like. When you think of baseball now, you still think of a pitcher and a batter lined up facing each other 60 feet, 6 inches apart with fielders spread out around them. That's what it's always been like. But the shift changes all that.
5: So, you know, I had a question uh, put to me, what is the upper limit of shifts? We did our analytics and said, all right, maybe about 50,000 shifts a year, and we're at 28. So we're about halfway there, and, you know, at some point... It's going to be totally accepted. It's a big deal now because it's increasing and you see it more happening more often. And fans are like, what are they doing out there? But it's going to become accepted strategy, just like different defenses in football.
0: So in 20 years time, the field we think of when we think about baseball might be the field Lou Boudreau thought of after the first game of that doubleheader back in 1946, the one he drew on that chalkboard. The one he dreamed up to try to stop the greatest hitter who ever lived. This episode was produced and edited by Joe Sykes. It was engineered by Tim Eininkel. Our editor was Jody Avergan with help from Emma Morgenstern, Julia Henderson, Rose Eveleth, and Andrew Mambo. Research and production assistance came from Jonathan Yales and Paul Williard. Web design by Kate LaRue and Gus Wazarek. Thanks also to Tony Chow, Jorge Estrada, Ryan Nantel, and Andrew Wagner for helping the studio. And a big shout out to Pete Gianacini in Bristol. For more about Ted Williams and the defensive shift, check out the companion article I wrote on the 538 website. And for more 538 podcasts, visit 538.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to our parent podcast, Hot Takedown, on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Next week on Ahead of Their Time, it's the NHL's Russian Revolution.
1: They're
2: coming, and they're going to keep coming, and pretty soon they're going to be on every team in the National Hockey League.
5: I don't know that this has ever happened in in any other sport. The floodgates were opened to a new talent base, and teams jumped on it immediately.
2: It was very difficult for some of our Russian players once they came. We had people from cars who yelled at our Russian players, you commie bastards go back to Russia.